There's never been, there will never be a love like yours. How great is your love? I, as I was seeing that, I was just grieving over the fact that there very well may be some of you who leave this weekend without knowing that love that God has for you. This incredible message of the gospel is that for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him won't die, but have everlasting life. And Jesus is the one God sent. God loves that much that he sent his son to die for us, to take our place. And, and we needed him to do that. See, God creates us all for himself. He makes us in his image like himself, more like himself than anything else that is. And he makes us for himself, for a relationship with him. That's the very core of our lives, is knowing God. That's what we live for, to glorify God. But we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every one of us has gone his own way, and we have decided to take off God off the throne of our hearts and put ourselves there in his place. And that's how the Bible describes sin. It's worshiping self and the work of our own hands rather than the creator himself. And we're all in that sinful condition together. And God knew we needed a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, and he sent him out of incredible love, not because we had earned it, proved it, demonstrated worthiness for it, but because God loves that much. And I would hate for you to leave this weekend not knowing that love deeply and experientially. That is what gives your life the security you desperately long for and wonder if you have when you're honest with yourself. And so we're created for God, and he makes a way back to him. He makes a way for us to know him again. And the way we are able to benefit from God's incredible love and grace in sending Jesus to live for us and die for us and rise from the dead for us is by simple, childlike faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus took our place. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a guilty stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus did everything we needed him to do for us, to restore our relationship with God, to bring us forgiveness and righteousness and adoption into his family. And I hope you understand that gospel message. I, I, I need to thank you for how incredibly receptive and attentive and eager to learn so many of you are. I've had conversations with many of you, and you are a group of people who are earnestly wanting to know God and understand his word. I also realize there's probably some of you here who, who think I'm a jerk, I don't know, and, and think what I'm saying is nonsense, and I love you, and I'm glad you're here, and I hope you know I love you, and I, I would love to talk to you. I would love, before we all head back down, to have a conversation with you if, if you think that I'm just out to lunch and some of the things I've been saying. And, and I'm just trying to get the Bible right. You know, it's easy to dismiss people in our culture. Ah, he's a hater if you disagree with somebody. But, but just ask, what are they basing their lives on? I'm basing my life on the Word of God. And when I teach, I'm trying to get the Bible as right as I possibly can doesn't mean I do it perfectly. No one does except God himself. But, but that's what I'm trying to do. That's my source of, of understanding this world. And I would love to know if this isn't your source, what is your source? How are you deciding what's true and what isn't? 
what's worth living for and what isn't. And I'm too impatient, as I mentioned, I think whenever that was, that probably impatience is the sin I wrestle with the most. I'm too impatient. There's a flip side, a positive flip side to impatience, that I don't want to live for anything but what lasts forever. I don't want to live for anything but what really matters. I don't want to give my life to something that isn't worth my life. And God alone is worth your life. That's what he made you for. And I hope, I hope you understand that central gospel message. And when you do understand that gospel message, it changes everything. I think you could define a Christian as someone who has beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ and is never the same. Because when you see who God is in Jesus, that's when you become aware of what you're made for, of who you are as made in his image. You know, the Lego song from the Lego movies actually write Everything is awesome. And you know what's the most awesome thing in creation? You are human beings. We're the pinnacle of his creation, but tragically, we've rebelled against our creator. And we can have a restored relationship with him through Christ. And and so I hope you realize that you have a meaning and a purpose and a destiny that God's given you that I would hate for you to forfeit by going your own way and being your own God rather than putting God in his proper place as your creator and your savior. That's who he is. That's what we've been talking about all weekend. Would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19? I want to think about what it means to walk with God, to truly be someone who has seen the glory of God in the face of Christ and is never the same. And it's a radical change that takes place. It may happen incrementally in your life but over time you start to be someone who reflects a life that is set apart by God for God where in Christ we are now finding our entire life it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me these are the words we've been singing powerful powerful words no fluff from this worship team it's just wonderful it's so good for my soul to be led by them before I preach but I want, you, I want you to get a glimpse of the church getting established in the first century after Jesus comes and he lives for 33 years. He dies in our place. He rises from the dead. He gives the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And then the church starts to grow. The Apostle Paul has his dramatic conversion and he becomes the pioneer missionary of the Gentiles. And he moves into Ephesus, this pivotal city, and amazing things happen beginning in chapter 19. They have revival and riots and people coming to Christ and people trying to kill the new Christians. And it's just incredible as the church is getting established here. But here's the pivotal scene in what God's doing in the church at Ephesus. Chapter 19 of the book of Acts. Starting at verse 11. Ready for nine verses? Can you hang really attentively for nine verses? Here we go. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So what I just want to say here is that the spiritual realm is real 
And that that's where our primary battle takes place. The Bible says that our primary battle is not against flesh and blood, although it exists there, but our primary battle is against principalities and powers in high places and spiritual powers of darkness. The spiritual realm is real, and the spiritual realm is our primary place of warfare. For Christians, we need to realize that when you become a Christian, you don't just become a child of God, you become a soldier in his army. I told you the, the last image of the church we're preaching on in the series at our church that starts tomorrow is barracks, that, that we as soldiers gather to get ready for battle, to get ready for warfare. And our weapons of warfare are the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the gospel of peace, prayer, the things that give us fortified armor to go into this world, faith and hope in the gospel, to be soldiers for Jesus, not bringing death, but offering life and being the very aroma of life itself as the aroma of Christ. So that's what we get to do. But a battle is raging here. And when you see miracles like this in the Bible, starting in the Old Testament and then the Jesus ministry and then the apostles ministry like here, don't just be wowed by the miracles. Realize that what they show is that Jesus is taking back his world. It's been under the power and the domain of darkness and Satan. But Jesus is coming back to take back his world. And every time you see demons cast out, every time you see sight given to the blind, enabling someone who hasn't walked for 38 years to walk, know that that's Jesus saying, that's mine, and that's mine, and I'm the creator, and I'm the king, and I'm taking back my world, and I'm advancing my kingdom. And then that continues through the apostles. And so this is dramatically happening. And watch this. There's some guys who want in on the action, but they don't know Jesus. I, I need to tell you that Ephesus, actually my, one of my colleagues, the dean of Talbot, where I'm on the faculty of the seminary, Clint Arnold is one of the world's leading experts on, on the religion of Ephesus. And it was one of the darkest, most demonic places spiritually in human history. It was incredible. There were entire industries based on the satanic and demonic worship that was going on in the Artemis cult, the, the worship of Diana. And so there was all kinds of spiritual darkness, and some people wanted in on that. They wanted power, even though they didn't know Jesus. So watch what happens next. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, even though I don't have a relationship with him. Watch. Over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. That's a giveaway, isn't it? Right? You know, the one Paul's going on about, and what a beautiful thing to have said. That Jesus, that one who Sarah is talking about all the time, the, the, the one that, that Timothy is always bringing up, or that Ezra loves so much. What, what a beautiful thing to have said about you. What's said about Paul here, the one that Paul proclaims all the time. That's the one we're talking about. So Jesus had shown his authority over the spiritual powers of darkness, and these guys, these exorcists who made a living off of this, no doubt, want in, but they don't know Jesus. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? I'm sorry, that's funny. 
It's hard to imagine humor in the midst of an exorcism, but that's what's going on here. They don't recognize these Jewish evangelists. They say, oh, we know the power Jesus has. These demons do. And we know that Paul has tapped into that power of Jesus. But, but you, we don't know who you are. You're not coming with any authority. And watch what happens. Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. What? That's just incredible. Like I said, anybody who thinks the Bible's boring must not have ever read it. That is wild. Look, I grew up in a rough area, and I, I got in a lot of fights growing up. I won, I won some, and I lost some. And, and I, I've been beaten up pretty badly, actually, starting with my big brother. I mentioned that one of you last. You, Carl? Yeah, my brother Carl. Yeah, I'm just having bad feelings right now. Looking at no, I love my brother Carl. We got in some fights, but he, you know he was two years older than I was, and man, he got the best of me when I was younger than he was. But and I've been beat up pretty bad, but never to the point of naked. I mean, <laughs> that is a butt whooping if I've ever heard of one. I mean, these demons overpower these seven Jewish exorcists and beat them up bad. And they run out of the house naked and bleeding, having no idea what they had gotten themselves into. They think they can throw the name of Jesus around and tap into some spiritual power. They had no idea what they were getting themselves into. And they run out of the house naked and bleeding. And I love the next verse. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. No doubt. Right? That one spread quickly. Did you hear what happened in the seven sons of Sceva? both Jews and Greeks, and listen to the result. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That's the pivotal reality. The fear of God falls upon them. And we know it's the fear of God and not just some unhealthy fear because whenever it's the true fear of God that strikes people's hearts, the name of Jesus is exalted. That's the true test of the true fear of the Lord is if it's Jesus being exalted. People can use fear to manipulate people, to control people in cultic-like ways. That's not what we're talking about. When the fear of God settles into people's hearts, Jesus is exalted, and that's what's happening here. The name of Jesus is extolled. Also, now listen to what happens. Look at the effect of this. Also, Many of those who were now believers, so they were believers before this event of this demonic overtaking, were believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books, their magic books together, and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so that the word of the Lord continue and increase and prevail mightily. Wow. So the power of Jesus is seen. The reality that there's no power without the person of Jesus is seen. The fear of God falls on them. They're convicted of their sin of engaging in these demonic practices, making their living off of these things, a healthy income from this. They're so convicted by it 
that these magicians publicly torch the source of their income, of their livelihood. Uh, 50,000 drachmas is what's going on here, pieces of silver. You know, uh, one drachma is a day's wage. This is millions of dollars. And they do it publicly. Everybody knew that they had this power and prestige and influence and income from this sorcery that they practiced. And these believers realized that they had something in their lives that didn't go along with being followers of Jesus. And that, that had to change. And so they divulged and confessed their evil practices before everybody, and they literally, physically torched the source of their income, their livelihood, their security, their prestige in the community. They trashed it all for the sake of following Jesus with integrity. And what I want us to think about is the Christian life grounded in Jesus' finished work, but then, as we said this morning, beginning a journey, a relationship with him that lives lives of holiness, lives lives of increasing set-apartness. We're saints of God if we've trusted Jesus, holy ones. I think it's tragic that the word saint in the history of the church started to get used to just refer to a select few Christians. That's not how the New Testament uses it. If you trusted Jesus, you're a saint. You are a saint of God. You're a holy one, a set-apart one, a hagios, this, this incredible description of someone who was formerly a, a blasphemer, a hater of God, a rebel, now is made not just a child of God, but a holy one of God, set apart for his purposes. And we need, dear ones, lives that reflect that identity. See, it's not something we earn or work for, but it's something we are now. We are saints. We're holy ones of God. And we've got to live lives that live distinctly different than people who aren't the people of God. Our lives need to look different. We need to be good and even excited about being different in following the path of holiness, in following the path of growing purity and sanctification, which means holiness, growing in holiness among the people of God. And so we have to live it. We have to live these Christian lives in a way where we're willing to sacrifice, like these magicians, maybe popularity, maybe worldly pleasures or the approval of men or your rights, like Johnny talked about this morning. They gave up everything they had on a worldly level for something bigger and better and greater. And I want you to realize that what led to this was a healthy, holy fear of God. They realized their lives needed to be dramatically different. Listen to Peter. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions, the things that really grip you, motivate you, have grabbed your heart, the passions of your former ignorance. You know, Johnny was saying this morning that we need to love people and identify with people who are blind, who are living in ignorance, because so were we. And we can never have some self-righteous attitude toward people who are blind, because we were blind too, and we were living in ignorance too. We used to be in former ignorance. Don't forget that. And like we said, if you came to Christ at an early age, this can be hard for you. But we boot up rebels. 
And so we need to realize, yeah, I started off ignorant of God, but by his grace, he gave me an understanding of who he is. He enlightened my eyes. He, he softened my heart. He gave me a Godwardness. And that's what I have because of his grace. I was formerly ignorant. And he's saying, don't live like you used to. Don't live in the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. You see, holy lives don't start with thinking about our holy lives. They start with thinking about the holiness of God. And that's the main objective of our lives, to know God. And the more we know him, the more we will understand ourselves. And the more we'll understand what he calls us to as his people. And so holiness is where we need to start. They got gripped in Ephesus by a sense of the holiness of God that leads to a fear of the Lord. And so holiness is where we need to think. God is holy, and he says, I want you to reflect who I am and who you are as my holy ones in the way you live. So Isaiah, the angels around his throne three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And holiness just means that God is absolutely and uniquely excellent and above all creation. God says to his people when they're, they're straying into sin, very often in the Bible, he'll basically say, the problem you have is you thought I was just like you. You brought me down to your level. And so you stayed at a level that isn't holy. And so lift God up, just like Johnny was saying this morning, and we'll see who we are to be. God is, is excellent above all creation, and he's without sin. There's a moral purity to him. And so we begin the journey in moral purity, growth and holiness, and being different than the world. And this is, this is what leads to the fear of the Lord. You see God for who he is, and you're gripped with a healthy, holy fear of him. The Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. I am desperate for wisdom every day of my life. I never felt it as much as when I became a dad. It's just amazing to me how much I need wisdom to know how to love my kids well, raise my kids to love God, because they're so different, and they need something so different from each other. And as I seek to be a good pastor and a good prophet by Ola, I want to love my students and, and the people in my church and my family, my neighborhood well, but so often I lack wisdom. And I ask God for wisdom, but, but isn't it fascinating that a prerequisite, the Bible says, of wisdom is what? Fear the Lord, a right understanding of who he is. And so we, we recognize that wisdom is where it, is, it begins with fear the Lord. And fear the Lord is something that we need to understand far better than we typically do, especially in the contemporary American church. Here's Sinclair Ferguson's excellent definition. Proper fear of God is a mixture of reverence and pleasure, joy and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. It's a love for God which is so great that we'd be ashamed to do anything that would displease or grieve him and makes us happiest when we're doing what pleases him. See, it's a weighty view of God. And that's what holy means. It means weightiness. It, I, no, I'm sorry, that's what glory means. It means weightiness. And so when we see the glory of God in his weightiness and the holiness of God in his distinction from creation, 
We understand who he is, and he takes over in our lives. And so we have this healthy fear of God that is both pleasure and joy and awe and reverence. You know, maybe the best way to define fear of the Lord is by just saying, you know what it is? It's seeing God and going, that's what it is. It's breathtaking. Have you ever literally had that experience of, of like the breath gets sucked out of your lungs? You ever had that? I'll never forget. Who's been to Yosemite? Seen the, the South Valley? Yes, good for you people. Yeah, I'll never forget driving through that tunnel and bam, there's the Southern Valley. And it's just, it was like somebody just extracted the air from my lungs. That's what we want to think about. And think about this El Capitan, Half Dome, Bridal Vale Falls. How about the God who made all of that? That's who we're talking about here as breathtaking as his creation is. And here, looking at King's Canyon down there, the deepest canyon in the country, that's just something God spoke into existence. If you really think deeply about God, it'll take your breath away. And that's what we're pursuing, a healthy, holy fear of the Lord. We're commanded to fear God. Now, there's unhealthy fear that's actually sin that we're not supposed to have. But there's healthy fear we're supposed to have and even commanded to have. Listen to Jesus. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, if nothing more they can do, I'll warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he's killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, Jesus is saying, have a healthy, holy fear of the Lord where he has the weight in your life that he deserves. In our disobedience, we need to realize our sin is not primarily because we don't have good enough filters on our computers or good enough accountability groups even, as helpful as those things can be because you can lie to the people in your accountability group. You can get around your filter. What's the key to combating sin? Fearing God. Fearing God. And if we're not cultivating a deeper fear of God, we're missing the whole point in our sanctification. This is what God says in Jeremiah 2. Your wickedness will punish you. Your apostasies will convict you. Know and see that it's evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying that's your problem. See, your sin is a problem, but what's under that is a failure to fear me sufficiently. Because if you see God for who he is, You run from sin, and you run to holiness. How often do you pray for protection? I prayed for for protection on the way up here when my friend and I got in the car at 4 a.m. on Tuesday morning and drove, uh, Wednesday morning and drove up here. We pray for protection. But look at this. The angel Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. Do you want provision from God? Do you want protection from God? Once again, do you see the prerequisite of the fear of the Lord? It's amazing how often we pray for wisdom, but not fear of the Lord. It's amazing how often we pray for provision and protection, but not the prerequisite fear of the Lord. Isn't that amazing? How prevalent this is in the Bible. I could look at hundreds of passages that bear this out. Fear is why we submit to each other in the body of Christ the way we do. Since we have these promises, I'm I'm sorry, it's our primary motive for holy living. So it's why we flee sin, and it's why we move toward holiness. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect 
in the fear of God. See what a massive idea this is. It's a massive idea. We, we don't spend enough time thinking about this. We, we don't have enough sermons on this. We don't have enough songs to sing that really bring us to the point of fearing the Lord. We like control, and when you really fear God, you realize you're not the one running the show. And you say with Isaiah, and Job, and, and Peter, and anyone who comes to a deeper understanding of God, I'm undone. I'm coming apart at the seams. Woe is me. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. You see yourself for who you are when you see this. And like I said, this is why we submit to each other in the body of Christ. Be subject to one another. Submit to one another, Ephesians 521 says, in the fear of Christ. You fear Jesus so much, you put your petty opinions and concerns aside for the sake of the unity of God's people in your local church context. It's why we have confidence in the fear of the Lord when has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares, snares of death. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. See Ferguson's definition there. It's both an, an awesome reverence and it's a delight and a pleasure at the same time. And look, Jesus is our example. Speaking of the Messiah in this prophetic passage, Isaiah says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. We, we find delight and joy in fearing God. And we've got to understand this as the healthy, holy fear that it is. It's not the unhealthy fear of an abusive father. It's not the unhealthy fear of, of the uncertainty of life or the future. It's not the kind of anxiety that's based on just not trusting God sufficiently. It's based in seeing God for who he really is. It's actually the kind of fear you have for a really, really good father. And one of the tragedies of our society is, is dads aren't showing us a goodness and an authority as much as they have for a lot of human history to the point where we get this better than we do. You know, moms used to say when their kids were out of control during the day and dad was at work, you know what they used to say to their kids? Wait till your father gets home. And the kid's like, mom, time out. Can we negotiate now? We don't have to bring dad in this, do we? Why would we do that? Mom, can't you discipline us? And, and now it doesn't mean mom can't, moms can't be strong and disciplinarians, but there's something about dad rolling in the driveway. There should be. There should be. I have a friend who's, He's, he's, he's this friend who, who has, he displays the fear of the Lord in awesome ways. Mark Clark, his name is. He's just an incredible guy. And I think a big part of the reason is he had a, a, a real dad. One day he and his friends were driving around and they were running out of gas in rural Florida. And they knew this gas station that left the pumps on at night. So Mark and his friends roll into this gas station. They steal a tank of gas. Just flat out steal it. They drive away, get a couple miles down the road, and realize that they left their Frisbee back at the gas station. They were actually chucking the Frisbee around as they were stealing gas. That's how bold they were in this. So they went back to get their Frisbee. When they pull in the gas station, lights go on, and the cops arrest them for stealing a tank of gas. As the cops are approaching the car, Mark says to his friends, nobody says a word, we don't know nothing, they got no evidence. Just deny everything. They get there, they bring him down to the police station, they separate him. They literally put a bright light on Mark and his friends in separate rooms and were grilling him, trying to get him to confess. And Mark was actually enjoying it. 
If you know Mark, he's like, this is cool. I feel like some gangster, right? You'll never get me, copper, you know? And, and, and he, he's not budging. He's, he's enjoying it, thinking, man, I hope my friends aren't selling me out in the other room. They didn't, he didn't know that they had called his dad. And after about half an hour, his dad rolls in the room, and he walks over to Mark, and he puts his hands on the desk where Mark was sitting. He almost put his forehead on Mark's forehead, and he said, Marky, tell them everything they want to know. Blah. He just spouted every, he turned all his friends in. He told them name, rank, serial number, distinguishing birthmarks, anything they wanted to know. <laughs> he turned them all in, including himself. Why? Because dad showed up. It's a healthy fear of a good father. That's what this is. And so, so we've got to know. See, we've got this unhealthy fear that we need to get rid of, but we need to pursue a healthy fear. And some people say, you know, I, I'm afraid of God, so I'm running from him. You know, if you understand the healthy bi biblical fear of God, you know what I say to people who say that? If you're running from God, your problem is not that you fear him. It's actually that you don't fear him enough. Because if you actually fear God, you'd realize you can't run from him. <laughs> That's not even an option. My wife and I have done a lot of backpacking and hiking and climbing and mountain climbing back especially in our younger days. And so I've read up on what you do when you encounter wildlife on the trail. And it's amazing how differently you react depending on the wildlife. And I'll never forget, I was reading this book on what to do when you encounter wildlife. And on this page, it had a description of what you do if you encounter a mountain lion on the trail. And it was just amazing. On the other page was what you do if you encounter a grizzly bear. And the mountain lion instructions were, were just fascinating. It, it, was say, it said, if you encounter a mountain lion on the trail, make yourself big, you know, be noisy, try to intimidate it, try to scare it. And then it said, if none of that works and the mountain lion charges you, you know what you're supposed to do? Fight it. <laughs> now, you don't stand a very good chance, but you have a chance, right? Grab a rock. Grab a stick and fight that thing off. People have successfully fought off mountain lions, even big ones. It's amazing. But then I read what you do if you encounter a grizzly bear. I couldn't believe how different it was. It said if you encounter a grizzly bear in a trail, uh, turn, do not establish eye contact, make yourself as small as possible, make it clear that you are yielding the trail to the bear and have no interest in him or anything he wants. And then I'll never forget what it said. It said, if this fails to work and the grizzly bear charges, <laughs> it said, drop to the ground in the fetal position to minimize the trauma. <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, you got a chance with that mountain lion. The grizzly? Nah. You just drop to the ground like a baby in the fetal position and hope he just plays with you for a while and gets bored and leaves, right? And that's a really good and a really bad illustration of, of fear of the Lord. It's good because you got to know with God that running is not an option for anybody. Jonah, right? For example, a prophet of God who's trying to run away from God as if... 
And so if, if you're trying to distance yourself from God, ignore God, run away from God, your problem is not a, a fear of him. That, that's right. It, it's a, maybe an unhealthy fear. But it doesn't mean you don't want to fear God. It means you want to fear him in the right way. But here's the radical difference in why the grizzly is a bad illustration. With God, you fear him so much that when you get to the end of yourself, you run to him. You know there's nowhere else to go. He's the only one who can solve your problem, and your biggest problem is with him. And he's got to solve that like he does in Jesus. And he does in his grace, in his love. You run to him. You know, I've heard it said that every other religion in the world says, oh, no, I've really messed up. Dad's going to kill me. Christianity says, oh, no, I've really messed up. I need to call Dad now. You go to him. You know he's the only one who can solve your problem. And he loves to solve your problem. He loves to move, move towards sinners and sufferers in their greatest need and care for us as a father does with all the power he needs and all the gentle compassion he needs as well. That's who God is. It's a glorious truth that we need to recognize in our lives. Jesus is our, is our example in these things. And so we recognize that we walk in newness of life. Sorry. Listen to Romans 6. What shall we say then? Or do we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, that's who a Christian is. You've died to sin. It's dead, dead to you. How can you still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism total identification into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That describes the Christian life. We walk in newness of life. That's who we are now. New creatures in Christ, by faith in Christ, and through union with him, we have new lives. This is what we quote when we baptize people at our church, buried with him in baptism, and raised to walk in newness of life. And then everybody cheers and shouts when they come out of the water because of this beautiful symbol of what's happened spiritually. And so this is the life to which we are called. And I would hate for you to leave here without experiencing this life. Um, I, I know there are some of you who may have come here knowing you're not a Christian. Every time I preach, I know there are probably four kinds of people. Pretty much count on it. One, I think there are thriving, growing Christians who need encouragement to keep going, just like they are. I think they're really struggling Christians who are battling in their faith and really struggling in all kinds of ways. I've talked to both kinds this weekend, and I've loved the conversations. I also think there are two other kinds of people every time I preach. One is people who aren't Christians, and they know it. They don't, they don't say they are. They don't think they are. Maybe they're attracted to Christian things, and that's maybe why you're here. But then the other category is people who aren't Christians and don't know it. They're just religious. They're just moral. They just know answers to, to questions about the Christian faith or the Bible. And, and, and I want to bless, every time I preach, all four of those people. I want to encourage the ones who are thriving and strong in their Christian life. I want to help those who are really struggling I want to help those who don't know Jesus and haven't trusted him to come to saving knowledge of Jesus. And I want to help people who are just moral, religious, nice people to realize that that's not what the Christian life is. That's the Boy Scouts. 
It's not the Christian life. There's a huge, nothing wrong with the Boy Scouts. But it ain't life in Christ. And so, so I, I don't know where you would categorize yourself this weekend. But I want to give you an opportunity right now to trust Jesus. I, I don't want this to be dramatic, the least bit emotionally charged or manipulative. But I want you to know that, that a relationship with God is in, incredibly personal. But it's not private. That's a big misunderstanding of the Christian faith. It's not private. It's incredibly public. This idea that you just keep your faith to yourself and that's somehow noble or respectful of others is not the Christian way. It, it's intensely personal, but it's not, it's not a private thing. It's a public thing. And I can think of no better way to start a relationship with God than to do it personally and publicly. And, and you'll never do it in front of a more friendly crowd than this, I'm telling you. And, and we need to live in the kind of culture that Johnny was talking about this morning that's, that's increasingly hostile to Christians. And so if you want to, the, for the first time, for the first time in your life, maybe you've come to the realization, you know what, I'm not a Christian, I knew it coming up, but I want to be one. Or, I thought I was a Christian, but, but I don't think I've really lived a life in light of who Jesus is. I think I've just been a church-going guy. If that's you and you want for the first time to trust Jesus, I want to pray for you. And to do that, would you just raise your hand if there's any of you here who want to trust Jesus for the first time? Gotcha. Thank you. Okay, let me pray. Lord, I thank you um, that this, this dear, uh, awesome creation of yours wants to trust Jesus. Lord, or, Lord, I thank you that we all desperately need Jesus. No one needed Jesus to die for us any more or less than anybody else. But, but I pray that she would know how loved she is by you and that she would know that Jesus has done everything, everything she needed him to do to know you as a child, as a follower of Jesus who's been brought out of darkness into marvelous light. Lord, I pray that you would fortify her spiritually and with people in her life to point her to you and help her to know what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. Lord, I don't know her story, but you do. I don't have the ability to help her now, but you do. And Lord, I pray your people would gather around her and be an incredible blessing in this relationship with Jesus. And for those here, Lord, who may have wanted to raise their hands, but, but just felt timid for whatever reason, I pray that they would know how much you love them and make sure before they leave that they are benefiting from that incredible love in Christ. Lord, protect our dear new sister from the attacks that will no doubt come. Lord, equip her, enable her, strengthen her, I pray. Get her in the word. Get her in a great church if she isn't already, Lord, and bless her and use her mightily as a minister of the gospel. And we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Johnny, where are you?
Look at that trot. He's trotting out of the bullpen. That's what that looks like. What do you think, Johnny? I have, I have a couple questions for you. You know, so much of, you mentioned the passage in Romans 6, that, you know, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. And that passage is an example of what happens over and over again throughout the New Testament, that our desire to be like Christ and the power to be like Christ are rooted in our identity in Christ. Amen. Now, I think for people growing up in the church, there is a difficulty in having a confidence of my identity in Christ when I don't have, number one, a definitive moment I remember when I got saved. There's been two seasons of sin. So then how do I pursue holiness not to prove my salvation, but as the gratitude that flows from a confidence in my identity. Amen. And I feel like there's a vicious cycle for people that have maybe grown up in the church or gone through seasons of sin where they, ha- they don't know if they have a, the proper motivation for their holiness, and so it cripples them. How would you help Yeah, them? what's fascinating is, it, is since the first century, the beginning of the church, we've had this tendency to swing in a pendulum to either legalism, where we earn it, or cheap grace, which are both missing the gospel. And so, for instance, there are entire letters written to churches that are living in the cheap grace idea like the book of James. We have letters of people living under legalism like Galatians written to combat that. So, so we always have this instinct to, to miss the gospel and either try to earn it or not understand everything I've been talking about in this session tonight, the fear of the Lord and his incredible love for us. Because if somebody really gets the gospel, they'll never say, cool, now I can live like hell. Because I'm forgiven. I know some people think that way, and the New Testament's addressing that. Sin all the more so grace may abound. May it never be. You're missing the whole core of the gospel. If you realize that Jesus took your place and saved you from certain judgment and eternal death, your conclusion will never be, cool, I can do whatever I want. No, now Jesus is calling shots. He's not just the one who saved my life. He's the Lord of my life. He's my creator. And so, so Jesus is my life now. And so we need to be gospel people who get this really well, who really live before Christ at the foot of the cross, humbled by that, dependent on that, and having examples and models like the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, and Jesus says she knows she's been forgiven much. And the one leper who comes back and thanks him, and and the people who really get what Jesus did, did for them, and then they live lives of holiness in the fear of the Lord. So, so the key is not even, first and foremost, finding my identity in Christ, but finding Christ. I think we can rush past Jesus to find who I am in Jesus, and it, you know, it can almost become narcissistic. It's all about me. Instead of about Jesus, and then how he saved me and gave me life. So, so it's got to be focused on Christ, focus on the work of Christ, to the glory of God the Father, empowered by the Spirit, and that's the gospel life we need to have to walk in newness of life. That's the key. That, that's why we need to be able to recognize when we're diverting from that and help each other stay on the gospel path. So you mentioned, Eric, the two distinctions. You know, Luther talked about filial fear and servile fear of God. One is a, a prisoner before his torturers, and the other is a, a little kid with his powerful dad. 
Now, it says that if we were buried, therefore, with him, baptism in the death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the God of the Father, we might too might walk in newness of life. Now, the question then, as a follow-up, would how can someone have confidence? Because even that fear of the Lord is rooted in a confidence that they're saved, the proper fear. So then how can someone have the proper assurance that they're saved so that even their fear of the Lord is one that produces holiness out of love and not one out of uh, the unhealthy fear. Right. Again, it, it, it really is Galatians 2.20 that I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's got to be grounded in that great exchange of my sin for Jesus' righteousness, of my guilt for Jesus' sacrifice, of my deadness for Jesus' resurrection power. And now I live in him. And he is my life. And that's got to be what I grounded in. And that's not going to lead me to earning anything. All I contribute is my sin. And, and it's not going to lead me to say, well, good, I can live however I want. Because my view of Jesus. And so, again, it becomes a pursuit of beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that then orders everything rightly. And I can live in freedom, incredible freedom. Although that in freedom for a child of God will include fatherly discipline as well. And, and there should be a healthy fear of that. That when I rebel as a child of God, he loves me too much to let me go on astray forever. And he promises like a good father, he'll, he'll discipline me and bring me back. Yeah, I think that's so important because so much of our pursuit of godliness and our pursuit of Christ-likeness is knowing that God is our father. And that's why Peter says, no, make your calling and election sure. Yeah. Because everything Eric has said in regards to that fear and that pursuit of the holiness is fueled by an understanding that I have been crucified with Christ. Amen. And so every time you're tempted to sin, you look at sin and you go, I'm in the same way Jesus Christ died on the cross, I'm just as dead to that temptation. It no longer rules me. It's no longer my master. That's really helpful, Eric. Any questions from you guys on anything Eric said? Yeah, go ahead. Great. Tell me your name. Laura. Laura, beautiful, beautiful question. That is the result of Jesus' human nature becoming completely united with his divine nature in one person. So Jesus, for his 33-year ministry, incarnate, enfleshed for us, truly representing us, he represents us to the point where, where he lives a life of obedience, tempted in all ways as we are, yet was without sin, overcoming the battles even of saying, not my will, but thy will be done. That's his human nature that, that doesn't sin, but fights the battle of an inclination away from God and his ways that never becomes sinful temptation, but is legitimate temptation. And so, so the leading of the spirit is something in his human nature he depends on. Prayer is something he depends on. Memorizing and meditating on and learning scripture, what this little Jewish boy in Nazareth depends on. And so he grows in wisdom and stature, favor with God and man in all ways that we do. So he truly is our example. He doesn't pull the divine nature card to overcome temptation or to be empowered. He plays by the same rules we do as a human being. That's why he really represents us and really becomes our example. That's, that's a prophetic word about the Messiah anticipating his human nature that will require spiritual disciplines 
to become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. He learned obedience from the things he suffered to become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. There was a process in this that his human nature brought to the equation so he could really represent us. Is that good? Okay. All right. Excellent question. Yeah, go ahead. Excellent question. Tell me your name. Gabriella, what a beautiful name. Gabriella, I, I would want you to be overwhelmed with God's love for you. I would want you to, to have an undeniable realization that he loves you, he's for you, he created you in his image, he's your heavenly father who cares for you with all the power and the compassion and the resources he needs to do that perfectly so that in this cruel and harsh and difficult world, he's got you in the palm of his hand. And then you depend on the word of God, the people of God, and, and the basic things we do to grow as Christians to continue that journey and that relationship into greater and greater delight in him, dependence on him, and the joyful walk of abundant life in Christ and eternal life with him. That's what you have to look forward to. And it comes with lots of battles. In, in some ways, your life is going to get harder than it's ever been because you've entered a battle you weren't in before. And, and so just, just lean into the people of God. Become a woman of the word. Become somebody who gets on your knees and expresses your dependence on God regularly in that way. And pursue relationship with God above all else in your life. And he will be the God you desperately need for him to be for you. Bless you, dear Gabriella. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions? Yeah, go ahead, bro. What's your name? Kyle. Kyle, what a great question. And so well articulated. Yes, thank you, Kyle. Yeah, great question. I mean, that was you your run. session. You run. No, I... Uh, that was your session he, this morning. He, uh, he was basically asking if, if you didn't hear, he was saying in a world that, I'm going to use his, your words, you said in a world that is somewhat described by cancel, cancel culture, and many times people fight the battle based on a subjective feeling or opinion or preference and even when you try to reason with them with maybe stats and facts there seems to not be they're not fighting a grand on common playing field is that fair yeah i think part of it would de depend on what conversation you're in you know so if you're talking about uh covid that would be a little bit different than the gospel of jesus christ it's funny and we giggle but i think sometimes those get looped into the same category and we think that everything objective is equally important and so that's where I would say, well, hey, listen, if you're talking about COVID or, um, and you're talking about the CDC and they're talking about the CDC and they say, I feel safe, you don't feel safe. And even I talked about this a little bit this morning, um, increasingly so that those words of safe comfortability are, are going to be buzzwords that you hear more and more. It's going to be like cutting edge for 2022, meaning like 
you hear it all the time. Um, but if it's the gospel, part of that is you, you're trying to, you know, one of the key words throughout the preaching of Acts is that it says Paul reasoned with them, he persuaded them, and with many proofs. It says with many proofs six times mm-hmm. throughout the book of Acts because Paul is reasoning with them. And even with people that don't line up with him from a theological perspective, he does find common ground in Acts 17. And he says, hey, I see here that you're very religious and there's an idol here to an unknown God. And then he's beginning to work with them, and he establishes his commonality, and then he goes, well, hey, the God that created heavens and earth doesn't dwell in anything made by human hands as if he needed anything from us. So I think the way that Paul does it is always helpful, that he doesn't start a battle. He's not trying to win an argument. He's trying to win a person. And I think so much of the conversations that we see in the political realm or in the social realm are two people that are trying to win rather than as a Christian, we're ambassadors. We're not arguers. And ambassadors are representing the mission that God has given us. And that is to plead with people to be reconciled to God, and we lay it out, and we can find common ground. But even the most powerful tool that Paul uses in Acts, in Acts 24, 25, and 26, 27, is he uses his own testimony before Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. And so I think that when people are fighting for subjectivity, you would say, hey, I have objective grounding for what I believe, but let me tell you that it has subjective reality within my own life. And Eric mentioned this tonight from Psalm 34. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so while the Christian faith is grounded in objective reality, it produces subjective experience. And so I never want people in a subjective world to think that we're only the kings of objectivity when the Bible says, taste and see, and then it says, yeah, even good. what you've said about the Word of God, it says in Second Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, that we are to crave the pure milk of the Word. Mm. Why? It says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, which is an experiential thing. So I think that we can find common ground in this objective as well, but I think reasoning in love is important, and that's why ultimately... Um, we go into every conversation prayerful, mm. and that's second, you know, and that's what it says in Second Peter three that we do the we have every conversation with gentleness, and then you know the next word, it says and respect. Um, I think so often when we're arguing with people and we see things as rock and they see things as water, the tone becomes disrespectful. And as much as maybe over the last couple of years in a truth telling environment, it's not disregard tone, just speak the truth. You would just never find that in Scripture because it says that when they heard Jesus talked, talk, they were wowed by the gracious words that were falling from his lips. I love that description in Luke. So I think that's worth noting. So I, I think don't get mad. Don't try to win an argument. Try to win the person. You do that with love by telling him your faith is grounded on objective reality and it's produced subjective, subjective experience in your life that's so wonderful, so thrilling. You have to tell him about it. And I think the resurrection has to be central to what we're saying. If you read the book of Acts, the resurrection of Jesus really gets the place of primacy in the gospel proclamation because that's this historically objective reality that's become subjectively transformative to us. And we can do it with joy, we can do it with gratitude, we can do it with delight in who someone is. And I'm amazed at how non-Christians in my life feel so much freedom to preach what they believe to me, even though they know I'm a Christian. Even people in my own family, they're, they'll like, man, is that karma or what, Eric? I'm like, no, I don't believe in karma, right? You know that. Or, or I was driving with, my, with somebody in my family, and she sees the, the digital clock in our van, and she says, 
1111, the universe has your back. And I'm like, what in the world does that mean, right? But it turns out the universe does has Eric back. Yeah, it, so I mean, yeah, I, whatever that means. It's turned and out for good. Somebody else said to me one time, we told him we were adopting our daughter. And the first question was, when was she born? And I said, uh, March. And she said, great, she's an Aries. You guys are Aries. This is going to work out great. And I'm like, I didn't believe in horoscope. And, and so... So, and it's not just that kind of stuff. It's, I, I have friends who think strip clubs are great and think I'm an idiot for not agreeing with them, right? So, so they're evangelistic about immorality. And here we're like, well, I don't want to impose my, my beliefs on anybody. Goodness, we have the words of eternal life. And so with joy and, and, and love for people, we, we should have a boldness in proclaiming what we believe to be true. It is a bizarre time though, Kyle, because I think unlike any other time in human history, people have a sense of their, experiencing, their experience creating reality. If I experience it, it's true, and you have no right to question it, and whatever that experience may be. And so that, that's a pretty crazy time. I highly recommend a book called A Strange New World by Carl Truman, which is a boiled-down version of a more academic version of that book, where he explains how we got where we are where people can, can speak in ways that are completely irrational, illogical, and incoherent, and everybody goes, oh, yeah, yeah, and goes along with it instead of saying, you ain't making any sense, man, because, because there's an irrationality because subjective experience trumps everything. That's why I said last night, ontology, reality, always trumps autonomy. So, so you may have a powerful experience, but if it doesn't align with what's actually true, it ain't true. And you can't make it true by having a sincere experience even of it. It's never going to be true. And we get that with things like gravity, right? But moral things, spiritual things, uh, we, we tend to think we can, we can be in charge of it. Is there one more? Yeah, go ahead, bro. Over, and then over here. So you'll be the last one. Well, you we first. Know, start over here. Go ahead. Oh, Olivia. Good for you, man. And then she's like, actually, if a God is so loving, why would he make us fear him by sending us to hell? And I'm like, well, technically, it's your actions, and you rejected what Christ had done for you on the cross, that sent you to hell. Boom. The universe has your back, you know, all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. 11, 11, yeah. I think maybe you can tag team this. I think there's two different ways to look at the fear of the Lord, and I, I want to be clear here. For the person that's rejecting God, there is a healthy biblical tear of a holy God. And so when Eric's describing filial fear, which is the fear of a child in awe of his father, that is the fear that describes the believer. Yeah. 
But the fear of God that an unbeliever has for a holy God is not something that the Bible is shy about. The Bible doesn't whisper about it. In fact, Jesus says in Luke 12, 25, do not fear man. I will tell you who to fear. Fear him who after you have died physically can cast both body and soul into hell. So Jesus, you know, sometimes I think we've got, we spectrum swing, and I think you use that term, and I, I like the term, that we don't want to present God as scary, and we don't want to present him as fearful or a judge. And that's why R.C. Sproul wrote the book, Saved from What? Question mark. Because we've eliminated this category altogether that God is a holy judge that we're going to stand one day before him. And so for the unbeliever, there is an element where you plead with people to be to flee from the wrath to come. There's a reason when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, he's not talking about anything other than fleeing from the wrath to come. Repent. Jesus shows up and says, repent. And so there is a real fear. That's Hebrews. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So that's one side. Mm. So, and then that, that's ultimately where John 3 comes into play. And I like John 3 because it's, you mentioned it tonight. Most well-known words in the history of literature are John 3.16. But 19 verses later, it says, he who does not believe is under the wrath of God right now. So as far as why people go to hell, just to be clear, nobody is in hell for something they did. People are in hell for something they do not do. And what they do not do is believe in Jesus Christ. And that's what the message of John 3 is. And that's what's clear. So there is this element where God punishes him because he's holy and he's just. But then his holiness, his justice, and his love and his wrath are in full expression on the cross because that's what Jesus bore. But if you eliminate justice and you eliminate holiness and you eliminate wrath, what did Jesus die for? And so that's why you can have a magnified view of the gospel, and that's what you can present, present to her. I don't know, you want to talk yeah, to Yeah, tell that? me your name. My name's kind of hard to pronounce, but that's What is it? Lul. Lul. Try it one more time, Eric. I got it. Lul. Lul. Spell it for me. L-E-U-L. Lul. Oh, okay. Right, Lul. Well, I just, I just want to say, what you said, you said to her, I think was fantastic. And I love that God has you in her life. Because I can tell you're a mature young man who's thought about these things. And it's not a coincidence that you're having these conversations with her. And, and I have no doubt he's already used you probably more than you realize in her life. And, and the Bible says that we should rejoice with trembling before God. So it's not this frivolous, yee, God's my boyfriend sort of thing. Um, there is a freedom, there's a joy, but there's a trembling as well. There's a whoa at the same time. And so it's not frivolous, it's not trivial, but it's not morose or, or um, an unhealthy fear. And so I, I just love in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe when, when they ask if the lion representing Jesus is safe? And the answer is, oh no, he's not safe, but he's good, right? And, and so I think, I think deep down, we don't just want a God who's really nice and loving in a shallow way. We want one who comes with all the power of the creator himself and the judge of all the earth. And, and so when it's a God who loves with tenderness and compassion and kindness, but is a consuming fire at the same time, now we're talking about God and not some projection of what we think God should be. And so, so to give that biblical 
um, holistic view of the character of God is, I think, the challenge for us. And emphasizing some things that other times, based on who somebody is, take some wisdom. You know, when I go to India and preach the gospel, as I've done many times, I talk about the fatherhood of God because Hinduism, Buddhism don't have those like, like Christianity does. They don't even have a personal God. And so, so I emphasize things that are lacking in that environment. And so with your friend, just ask God for the wisdom to know what to really emphasize and what the Bible says about God based on, on a whole Bible picture, but also what her particular needs seem to be. And the Spirit's working through you. You don't have to discern at all. He'll use your faithfulness beautifully. Keep up the good work, brother. Maybe just one more and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Tell me your name. What is Ansley. Hansley. Ansley. 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 Again, you have a joy in you that it's not a coincidence you are friends with this person you're talking about. I just love the way God orchestrates that kind of thing. But, but yeah, the Bible does distinguish between sin and persistent sin. Uh, sin that we battle sin that we even fail in at times miserably, but then sin that, that defines our life. It's the trajectory of our life. We've made friends with it. We've made that idolatry quite at home in our hearts, and we've justified it, we've rationalized it, we've excused it. So there's a difference between sin we fail in, even, even significantly at times. But I, I think of David, where my man broke half the Ten Commandments in that one sand with Bathsheba. Half of them. And the Bible ultimately describes him as a man after God's own heart. Because the trajectory of his life is shown in Psalm 51 where he owns it. He doesn't rationalize it, he doesn't excuse it, he doesn't try to redefine the sin and, oh, it's not that bad. He owns it. He says, against you only you have I sinned and done what was evil is in your sight. So, so true repentance so there's a time in a believer's life where, like Paul says to the Corinthians who are allowing all kinds of horrible sin to go unchecked in their church, he says to them, you need to examine yourself to see if you're found in the faith or if you're found wanting because you're giving evidence that you don't get it, that you don't get what I've been talking about tonight in this sermon. Because one of the main roles of the Holy Spirit is bring conviction of sin. I've heard it said that, that the difference between Christians and non-Christians is not that non-Christians sin and Christians don't. It's that we Christians can't enjoy sin like we used to because we're, we're, we're convicted of it. We can't just go on in it and, and unbothered by it. And so, so I, I do think challenging a friend who's, who's making friends with sin and, and minimizing it is something a prophetic ministry is, is what we're called to. Um, but, but yeah, I would, I would actually bring a real challenge and exhortation to a friend who's trying to make friends with sin because it leads to death. I think just one thing to add in the distinction between sin and uh, constant sin is, is 1 John is basically the answer to that question. If we walk in the light, as he, as he walks in light, we have fellowship with him. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, it's a present progressive verb, meaning the practice of our life 
It says that we deceive ourselves. So I think that First John is really the answer. By this, we come that we know that we have come to know him if we walk in his commandments. And then the question is, well, how do I know if something's habitual or the practice of it? And that's where there's the difference between the security of salvation, once saved, always saved. But someone who's truly saved that's living in sin will over time truly lose that assurance because the surest proof that we've been changed by God is the fruit he produces in our life. So little fruit is a sign of, or at least a cause for examining, as it says in Corinthians, if God's ever given us a new heart. So I, I think that is a really important thing to distinguish. But can, can I, I just tell you something I love about being my age? I've actually seen I'm actually some, interested in this answer. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I've experienced in my life sin that I used to really battle and be tempted to be put to death. I mean, the Bible commands to kill sin and put it to death. And I, I'll never arrive in that until I see Jesus face to face. But I've, I've arrived there in other areas. And that's not pride before the fall. It, it, there's sin I used to be tempted to that now if you asked me to do it, it'd be, it'd be like asking me to eat garbage. I'm like, why in the world would I ever do that? Sin's lied to me every time. It's never kept its promises. Why would I trust it, right? So it's been really cool to see battles with sin still continue with certain sins in my life, but other sins in my life, they're dead. They have no draw for me anymore. And that's a foretaste of heaven when we'll be completely free from sin and even the temptation toward it. Glorious day that I'm looking forward to in that. Mm -hmm. Oh, Lord, I'm grateful for your grace and I'm grateful for your wrath and justice and mercy and jealousy and power and presence and glory and goodness and kindness. Lord, I'm grateful for everything you are because we know that you're not just who you are in yourself, you're who you are for us. Marshalling your divine attributes every day for our good and for your glory through our lives. And so we pray that we would be a people who are consumed with knowing you and exalting Christ who brings us back in relationship with you. Lord, thank you for these amazing, precious, beautiful daughters and sons of yours. What a joy it's been to, to interact and be part of what you're doing this weekend. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing on us as we continue to seek to know you together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.